This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Ah, the big payback. That's how some Walmart employees might be feeling right now. That, uh, after the biggest retailer in the world, boosted its starting hourly wage and also delivered bonuses to employees. Uh, it all has to do with the U.S. tax overhaul package. Let's get into this with our own Matthew Boyle. He is U.S. retail reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. By the way, Walmart shares just up about half a percent at $100.19 a share. Nice to have you here. Thanks. Tell us what Walmart is up to. Well, they're up to the same thing they were up to three years ago, which made a bit more of a, a splash when they did this three years ago. They spent a billion dollars three years ago raising wages, and that came at a time you know, when they were being pilloried for their treatment of employees. Now, this time, as you mentioned, the share is not moving much. It's a smaller announcement, but still a very important one, um, you know, and certainly driven by the, uh, the tax windfall that Walmart, along with many other companies, is seeing here. What are the specifics in terms of the hourly wage and the bonuses? That so, yeah, so now? the and who start- Starting hourly wage, we've got to be specific here. This is not the average hourly wage. This is get very technical. The starting hourly wage for Walmart employees is now going to be 11 bucks, moving up from around 10 bucks. Most workers are at, are at around 10. Um, uh, they had moved from uh, probably just the minimum wage, you know, seven twenty-five to nine dollars, and then to ten, and now they're moving to eleven as of next month. But what they're also doing is giving a one-time cash bonus of as much as a thousand dollars to workers, depending on their seniority. That's um, that's good money in Bentonville. That's not good money in Oakland. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that. Tom <laughs> yeah, Keen actually retweeted. I guess yeah. people were saying, "Oh, it's a thousand dollars," and somebody tweeted, "You know what? If you're making under fifty thousand, like I am, yeah." A thousand dollars does something. Well, they got they got in a lot. They got a lot of flack something. last time for raising the wages three years ago, but not doing enough for older employees for whom it, d- it didn't really qualify. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't, for a lot of them, it didn't really impact them. They were already making above nine or ten or whatever it was. So they, they this bonus is sort of a, a little additional sweetener. And you're right. I mean, if you're a cashier and um, you had been making, let's say, you know, nine twenty-two an hour. Um, this uh, increase up to 11 uh, can be meaningful, depending on where you live, though. Certain states are already paying well over 11 bucks an hour. So Walmart was clear to say for a sizable uh, chunk of their employees uh, already making that much. Among one of the more memorable things uh, that I remember in, kind of, in terms of business news is I remember being at a, a Walmart, one of their big annual meetings. You yes. know, it's quite an affair it is. in Bentonville. Uh, a lot of celebrities playing it's, it several days, right? It's like right? a rock concert mixed <laughs> with a religious revival meeting mixed with a corporate shareholder meeting. But I do remember a couple of employees or an employee getting up and saying, I need to talk to you about wages. You know, and this is well, coming after st- after stories of workers who were below the poverty line. You know, working at Walmart getting and food stamps while they worked there, yeah. exactly, and applying for the food stamps at Walmart. And yeah. what's and what's interesting is they kind of said, okay, well, we have a committee. You know, let, let's put you aside for now yeah. and stuff. But it stayed with me. I mean, yeah, they never want anything to rock the nice vibe of their shareholder meeting. But there's still a lot of complaints. A huge complaint is when they moved to these computer generated labor scheduling software, where the algorithm would just spit out your schedule for the week. And if oh, sorry, you've got a if your kid is sick or you've got a parent-teacher meeting at that time, you wanted you're supposed to do a shift. Too bad. 
you know, uh, you know, you're not going to get the hours. What does this say, though, about the tax overhaul package? Because this Walmart's not the only company, right, that has come out and either said no, higher wages have. or a Boeing bonus. Boeing has AT and T right. has Time Warner. A couple of the banks have come out with some uh, additional wages and, and bonuses to customers. And this is just the tip of the iceberg for Walmart. People are saying they're going to see between a two and three billion dollar windfall uh, from the tax cut, and they're only spending seven hundred million today. So they're going to invest some of it to lower prices, even more so because remember they're still in a super market price war. I mean, this is a company that makes, what, like $485 billion in revenues. Yeah, it'll make nearly $500 billion in, yeah. in revenues. Right. Um, uh, you know, so we worked out that this uh, $300 million they're spending on, on the wages here, you know, is five hours of sales for Walmart. Well, and, and, and so, all right, so more of this. So in 2013, there was a report out of Congress. Yeah. In 2013, there was a report out of Congress that showed that, nine, that the average Walmart employee cost the U.S. $900,000. That 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 the the because of uh, the public assistance doled out to low wage workers that 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 was a great expense uh, 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 to the rest of the populace okay. that Walmart can yeah. pay so little but the rest of us are paying them public assistance that Walmart has that great same software you talked about scheduling also makes sure that certain employees don't get to full time levels where they get benefits or yeah. they'd be eligible for this kind of raise so the, it it sounds great uh, if, you know for when I heard the stories about AT and T and bonuses and stuff and nice of them to give a bonus yeah. a bonus isn't a raise a bonus goes away after the first. Not a, yeah. a raise is a commitment allows someone to change their yeah. lifestyle and, and raises their standard of living and lets them spend that money yeah. on a more consistent basis. Well, Corey, you make and a really a good point. The whole economy. Yeah, you make a really good point about hourly versus full, you know, sorry, part-time versus full-time workers. Right. Now you look at one thing we haven't talked about today, the uh, expanded uh uh, leave policies for maternity and parental leave. That's only that for the Walmart full-time. is announcing as yeah, well. Yeah, Walmart is announcing as well. They're really expanding their maternity leave and their parental leave uh, program here, uh, going to a fully paid maternity leave, not just partially paid, and uh, you know, uh, additional weeks as well, ten weeks, not just the six to eight weeks. But that's only if you're full time. And what Walmart has been doing, mm. and other retailers as well, is limiting the amount of employees they have, hourly employees who are considered full time. They'd much rather have you part-time because it's cheaper for them. And they're still doing that. Oh, they still would be doing that. And yes. the software is doing that. The software is calculating. Yeah, the software hey, is don't, saying don't schedule the person on a yeah. Saturday because they'll get to 40 hours. Yeah. Let's schedule them on Sunday I, so they stay at 35. Yeah, and they can blame the algorithm. There's a really well-known company that I worked for a few years ago that did the same thing in terms of limiting the hours because they – just yeah, this is why we shouldn't just add another you know, yeah. headcount. We shouldn't know, just point the, the finger at Big Bad Walmart. No. Everybody does this, yeah. okay? Every, every corporation would rather have you part time than full time. We're pointing the finger at Walmart today because Walmart's pointing the finger at themselves. What, yeah, look, exactly. look at what good, but, good guys are But what's are interesting? Wages. Are they competing for workers at all? Is this part of that? Yeah, everybody is. Oh my yeah. god! I mean, you look at the, the there's a war for seasonal workers. I mean, Target just raised their wages to eleven dollars in October, and they're going to be raising them to fifteen dollars an hour by 2020. So this war is by no means over. Right, and higher wages filters into maybe higher costs for goods. And, you know, I just think about the bigger, broader story of inflation. Let's move on now and, and talk about uh, uh, sort of what maybe these tax cuts mean, the things we just heard being discussed, and what CFOs are thinking right now. Deloitte does a, an annual survey of CFOs, uh, really uh, helps us really see what CFOs are thinking and doing about what they're about to do. Uh, and Sandy Cockle joins us from Deloitte, uh, who looks at the global CFO uh, uh, initiatives there at Deloitte. And uh, Sandy, uh, is a really interesting time where um, the perception leads to a reality, I think, when it comes to expectations around tax policy and uh, what uh, money CFOs are going to have to play with. I would imagine you're seeing that in your survey. Yes, uh, Corey, we certainly are. And this uh, survey is actually conducted on a quarterly basis. This was our 31st uh, consecutive quarter. It closed November 17th, so it was actually before we had the tax bill. But 
Uh, what I would say, there's, there was tremendous optimism at that time from what we measured. Um, over the 80 percent of the CFOs at that point in time felt like we would get a tax bill, um, and well at about 67 percent um, expected tax cuts and lowering of taxes. So those things have certainly come to fruition. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I'd cite here is if you go back to that point in time, um, the, at that point the Dow is about 2300, 2350, and it's, it's risen more than 2,000 points since then. So, uh, you know, the, the, that optimism continues to fuel growth in the market. Okay, but they're optimistic, but they also at the same time, according to your survey, um, shows that the majority of them think the U.S. market is overvalued. So they're yes. optimistic, but they're saying, whoa, everybody, you might want to slow down. Whoa. Yes, Not just Carol, whoa, that's whoa, exactly whoa. right. <laughs> whoa. whoa is more than whoa. Eighty-four <laughs> percent of uh, the CFOs at that point said that the U.S. markets were overvalued. Now, it's interesting, when I have discussions with individual CFOs, you can expect it, the way they think about their own companies, um, they still think there's headroom. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting when they think the overall market's overvalued, but they still think at their individual companies, there's a way to still, still grow that top line. Any, anything that you saw in terms of the results and the questioning that weighs um, you know, the trade-off or the importance of paying their workers more or whether keeping costs down is still a priority? Any idea in terms of where those two might rank? Yeah, Carol, we didn't ask that specific question, but what I would say, there are a couple data points I'll pull together. Number one, um, the CFOs were forecasting a 2% hiring growth over the next year. Um, that's actually ahead of the two-year average. That's, that's pretty good. But the one thing that did come out is, is the, the cost of expected cost increases around skilled labor um, and the difficulties in attracting and competing for skilled labor. Um, they expect to see significant increases in attracting those kind of people over this next year. So uh, looking at that, I mean, are they going to take bigger risks and, 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 uh, and try to sort of shoot for the moon a little bit more than they have in the past? Yeah, of course. So what's happened, we asked that kind of two ways this year. Um, first of all, what the 40 percent of the CFOs said they're willing to take more than normal risk, and that will probably be baked into their strategic plans. That's up from 25 percent a year ago. Um, but in terms of generally, 63% of the CFOs said it is a good time for companies to take on more risk, whether they do it or not. So almost two-thirds of the CFOs are pretty bullish about this is a good time to be doing that. Uh, well, certainly interesting uh, time, and we'll see how they actually spend it and what the effects are. Uh, really glad to have you, as always, Sandy Cockrell, uh, but uh, especially uh, given the context uh, today, Sandy Cockrell, a Global CFO Program Leader at Deloitte. about crowdfunding uh, and how it can help out companies. And I feel like, first of all, let me take a step back because I feel like one of the most fascinating stories of this week, perhaps a sign of the times, Eastman Kodak. Yep, that's the company that was founded at the end of the 19th century by George Eastman, saying this week that it would launch the Kodak Cone. Coin. Coin. Kodak 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 Coin. coin. I can't say that. Uh, A cryptocurrency. Uh, 
we want to talk about that and maybe how it plays into also uh, crowdfunding. Darren Marble is with us. He's Chief Executive Officer at Crowdfund, uh, Crowdfund X. I can't talk. It's been a busy day. You guys are a digital marketing agency, right? And you use AI um, to kind of access investors for public and private investment, correct? That's correct. We're a financial marketing firm based in Los Angeles, and we have marketed 50% of the crowdfinanced IPOs that have happened in the United States uh, in the last two years. So this, uh, I, I guess who I just talked to, Carol? I know, the Kodak. Jeff Clark, CEO of CEO. Kodak. We tried to get him on the radio show, and they had and the, 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 the a blackout at the Extreme Electronics show, ironically. Um, and what Jeff really talked about, Jeff Clark, CEO of Kodak, really talked about crowd. And he talked about how um, this, this community, uh, in particular the community of photographers, has, has uh, since the days of George Eastman, found their work ripped off and found their work copied, and maybe more mm-hmm. so as things have gone digital. And that this notion of the crowd can actually... Rather than waiting for someone to say, hey, you, did you notice your image is being used by this company or being used by this person without your permission, that embedded within the image will be that kind of technology. That the crowd itself, uh, using blockchain, can solve this problem of ownership and pay, getting paid for your, the use of your work. Yeah, that's correct. And, and I should uh, mention we're honored that Kodak is a client of uh, CrowdfundX. We've actually been engaged to market that initial coin offering or ICO. Mm-hmm. I need to quickly disclose that we're being compensated $75,000 in cash and $75,000, sorry, 75,000 Kodak tokens to help market them. What's really interesting, what I like about this deal is that they're doing it in a fully compliant manner. This offer is being done as what's called a Regulation D 506C campaign. As the SEC and Chair Jay Clayton have recently indicated, they have not yet seen a token that is a utility. All of these offerings are securities, and the Kodak team is very smart to structure their token as a security token. So Regulation D, what is it? 506C. Okay. And what that means is that only accredited investors Mm -hmm. can invest. Uh, in the U.S. and internationally. That is that a million plus or something in terms of assets? Remind it's us. A million dollars in investable assets right. and two to $300,000 annual income. What kind of interest are you seeing in something like this, the Kodak coin? In the first 24 hours, more than 7,000 people registered their interest on the Kodak One website, which is absolutely stunning and phenomenal, uh, largely a result of a tremendous PR campaign. Um, so uh, just about 30 seconds left here. I mean, do, do you see this as something... Uh, above, like on a higher level, both in terms of go- corporate governance, but also in terms of sort of the potential usability compared to other coins? Um, I think so. I think Kodak is a business that's been around for 130 years. It's not a startup. This is not an mm-hmm. idea. So it's instantly separated and differentiated from every other blockchain startup that is launching a, a coin or cryptocurrency. I think these guys are going to be incredibly successful. I feel like it finally kind of starts to click and make sense. And, and we understand uh, maybe the power of a digital currency and the blockchain technology. Come back. I know we were squeezed a little bit because of uh, uh, going to Washington to listen to the Treasury Secretary. But come back. We'd love to talk Thank more. Thank you so much. Darren Marble. He's Chief Executive Officer at Crowdfund X, based in Santa Monica, California, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Thursday. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the
the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Indeed, it will drive the close. Uh, it's a regular segment here where we focus on uh, what's happening in the markets right before the market close. We're glad to have Walter Todd on with us right now, the Chief Investment Officer of Greenwood Capital Associates, uh, joining us from Greenwood, South Carolina, with a look at, uh, well, the start of the new year. Uh, it's the first time I think we've talked uh, so far this year, Walter. And, and I wonder, with some uh, perspective on the last year, how do you see this next year? Yeah, and it's interesting. It is a new year, but the kind of the same story with the market uh, melting up here. A little bit. <laughs> Bond market looks different. Yeah, yeah, the bond market does look different, and even in the construction of the of the way the market's moving higher is different. Um, you know, if you look at the sector performance so far this year, it is quite different from what we saw for most of uh, 2017. So you've got some more inflationary or reflationary trades happening with energy and materials and industrials, kind of taking the lead over that of tech. Um, so that's certainly different. Consumer discretionary has come on here lately, and, uh, and financials have picked up in the back half, um, you know, the fourth quarter and, and so far this year. So, yeah, you're right. It is um, kind of the, uh, the overhead level. It looks the same, but underneath it is it is quite different. So how do you make sense? Like, take a name like General Electric, right? It had the worst drop in the Dow Jones Industrial Average last year, about 45 percent lower. It's now up about 9 percent in 2018. Is this just folks tired of the same old names and looking for a stock that's cheap and been beaten up? Or does it kind of make sense? Like, what, what are we trading on right now? Yeah. Well, as it relates to GE and, and stocks like that, you, it is not, not uncommon to see in January a, a reversion of, to the mean, so to speak, of, of the worst performing stocks outperforming in January. So that's a very kind of common occurrence. Some would look at that and say, well, you know, energy is just participating in that and what we see every January, which is the worst performing stocks from last year are doing better. We think there's more to it as it relates to energy. I don't know specifically with GE. They've got a lot of wood to chop to kind of turn things around. So I do think that is maybe just a, a bounce. Uh, but I do think some of these other trends we're, we're alluding to are more um, you know, longer, longer lasting. Um, it, it is interesting, too, uh, as we've seen uh, um, you know, the tax policy come into effect. And, and we have you know, everyone from Warren Buffett to, I don't know, we had the CEO of Quest Diagnostics on with us yesterday saying, this is a big difference for us. It's going to mean uh, we're going we're gonna to spend some money. We're going to look at share buybacks. We're going to um, – uh, and, and, I, and I wonder – so historically we saw a lot of share buybacks when we, last time we saw so repatriation. We didn't see a lot of hiring. We didn't see the investment in R&D. And let's let's just say history repeats itself, or at least it rhymes. Um, what? How does that? If we see share buybacks, not uh, R and D investment, we see share buybacks, not uh, big hiring uh, binges. If we see share buybacks, where do you look to invest? And and, and dividends, I should say. Yeah. Um, well, the biggest beneficiaries of repatriation, um, you know, that would flow through to share buybacks would certainly be, you know, technology would be a, a big one there. Even um, you look, energy and materials do a lot of business overseas, so they would have a lot of money to potentially bring back. But tech would be at the top of that list for sure. I think the difference this time is you know, you've got somebody – I think companies believe they have somebody kind of looking over their shoulder to see what happens. And I think you'll see kind of the like we have so far, the PR announcements around increases in wages and bonuses. They don't really have to disclose the, the buybacks because they've already got existing you know buybacks in place that they can, that this can fall under, so they don't have to necessarily publicize that. So I think you'll in the headlines you'll see a lot more of the investing, spending um, on their employees and, the, and their businesses. But what really happens at the end of the day, we'll have to wait and see. Does this mean, though, if we're seeing wages creep up, um, 
that it's going to be a more costly business proposition for companies going forward. We we are uh, we talked with one of our Bloomberg News reporter about how you, you know Walmart's competing for workers, a lot of the retailers and and so on. Uh, those higher costs obviously creep into then the higher cost of items that are being sold, and that uh, kicks up the potentially the inflation curve. And could that put an end if we start to see the Fed kick into higher gear when it comes to raising rates? Put an end kind of to this business cycle. Yeah, I think that's that's the risk, you know, out there that we are paying attention to because I do believe that eventually, even though it seems like it's taking forever for inflation to kind of show show itself, we do think this last round of wage increases that we're starting to see uh, will start to push inflation higher. You see the commodity moves that we've had so far recently, um, that's pushing inflation higher. So the risk is the economy overheats and the Fed gets more aggressive or even the market perceives the Fed's going to get more aggressive. And that starts to really kind of drain liquidity from the market. And later this year, maybe early in 2019, you do start to see the end of the business cycle. I think that is one of the bigger risks um, out there, because right now, the market's only pricing in really two uh, rate increases uh, by the Fed, if you look at Fed fund futures. So to the extent we've got to go from two to maybe four, as some have uh, indicated, that's a big shift that the market has to make and could have some negative implications for stocks. And then, of course, we've got the midterm election, which we haven't touched on yet, which which is another risk out there. So uh, as we look at other risks out there, what else is on your horizon? Yeah, so um, the, the midterm election is, is, is definitely one of them. The uncertainty Why is it a risk? By that. It'll definitely well, happen. The ri- I'm going to tell you right now. Don't no, worry about it. It's going to happen. Out, I should say the outcome of the midterm election. Oh, Thank okay. you for correcting me on that. Um, you know, what is the outcome going to be? Are the, is, are the Democrats going to take back over the House, uh, which they haven't controlled for quite some time? Um, that's an unknown right now. And as we move closer to the election, nobody's really paying attention to it right now. That's going to become more in the forefront and create, we think, create some volatility in the market because that has implications uh, for different sectors. Mm. And then the other thing I would say, just more broadly speaking, is you know, central bank balance sheets around the world have been going up for, for a decade. And we think at some point late this year, early in 2019, the global central bank balance sheet, if you will, of the major central banks will peak. And okay. we think that's a you know, significant issue. Walter Todd, thanks for checking in with us. Chief Investment Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. talk a little bit about um, uh, money and not being foolish, actually, with your money. I told you. Thank God. TGIF. Thank just, God it's Friday, but it's not. Just around the corner. Hey, uh, John Thompson is back with us. Thank he's God it's John Thompson. Chief, the real John Thompson. He's going to save us. Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer at Vilas Capital Management based in Chicago in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. Good to have you here. Um, I'm going to jump right in because you guys own shares of General Electric. Yes. When did you buy in? Uh, about a month ago. Nice trade. Yeah, it's been good. It's up like nine or ten percent already this year. Right. What's your yeah. thinking on GE? My thinking is that it's, you know, it's gone down so far, so fast, and they still do have some great businesses. Um, I'm writing actually a letter to the board that said basically stop buying. Board, if anything. you're listening. Yes, stop buying anything and stop selling anything. Just. Hold what you've got. Just be for a while? Just be and run the railroad business well, the aircraft engine business well. They've made so many timing mistakes trading businesses. 
They sold NBC right before Time Warner and Disney tripled. They sold GE Capital two years ago before the banks have gone nuts. They bought, uh, you know, the oil business when oil was 120 bucks, and Baker now it's Hughes, fallen in right. half. And now they want to yeah. get rid of Baker Hughes. Bad management. What's their problem in your view? They're buying high and selling low. <laughs> Uh, not a good so, so, so the over... listen to the bankers who walk in the door and tell right. them, make a deal, make a deal, make a deal? It's like going to a car dealer with a six-month-old car, and you say, hey, you know, I'm thinking, should I get, you know, this is a 17, should I get the 18? The guy's going to be like, of course you should get the 18, you know? <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy named Warren Buffett, and he says, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> never ask a banker if you should do a deal. That's right. I have to say, your hedge fund, you guys sent over some numbers. Is it really up 65% last year? We, we, Minus yep. fees and expenses. Or before yeah. fees and expenses. We can't really comment on it, but we had a decent year. Well, so. I want to know because otherwise I'm, I'm only going to talk to you if you're doing well. Yes, you see, we'll let him tell us exactly what his numbers are. But here's why I'm amazed that your numbers have been so good when you were short two of the biggest gainers last year uh, and in Tesla, which sold off a little bit at the end of the year. But you, you told us before in the, we were in the dark there that uh, you were underwater on that one still. And Amazon. Right. And Netflix. Right. So we're short all three of those. 46% up on Tesla, 55% up on Netflix, 56% up on Amazon last year. Right. I'm, I'm not trying to rub. Salt in my wound. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's already And you're there. still short. Right. And added to those today, uh, two of them. Um, I think the issue is, you know, it's sort of like buying life insurance. It, you know, I'm sure you own it, and it, it's probably not working out for you yet because we're talking here. So, you know, the, it's the good and bad of it. Sorry, right, I've right. For a long time, I never got to use that. Right, line. Like, right. So, oh, so our, our 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 short positions are really hedges against a, a very big change. I think that'll occur in the market, which is, you know, the sort of uh, another tech kind of wreck. I think is going to come eventually. Some kind of route. Yeah. I mean, Cisco Systems was one of the best companies in the planet back in the 90s. You know, they had 65% share of the router market, which was growing massively. They were creating tons of cash, yet the stock still fell 90 or 95% between 2000 and Valuation was a problem. Yeah. But you can't, okay. And the valuation on these are a problem. Just in valuation. I mean, you can. You can. But you shouldn't. I would would argue the short sell. Why not find fundamental rot? Because usually by There's that two time, of those the borrow have. cost on those is so high that you can't find You were telling it. me the borrow cost in Tesla isn't that bad? You, one one would argue low. the free cash flow burn there shows a real fundamental rot. The problems in production they've got, might, one might argue, have fundamental rot. You could look at Netflix and look at their free cash flow burn and their off-balance sheet commitments and, and, and liabilities of, of billions, over $10 billion in content they're going to have to pay for. Best case scenario, right? you can see some rot there. It's, uh, well, that's why we're short those. So that's about business reasons. It's not just about valuation. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're not short Facebook. We're not short Google. We're not short Apple. I mean, those are very profitable, very good businesses. Amazon, Netflix, and Tesla are not good businesses. Let me Amazon suggest, does not make any money. Let me suggest to you Amazon's a good money. business. Let me suggest to you that Amazon's a good business because they generate cash flow from operations. They don't generate net income uh, in size because they don't want it because they don't want to pay taxes. So they generate – just like a supermarket, they, they generate very low profits, very high cash flow from operations. They take all the free cash flow, plow it into making the business bit bigger. And that, that, that has allowed them to become a very big company while not showing much in terms of EPS but showing a lot of cash flow from operations and not having negative free cash flow. So I've studied the cash flow statements extensively. Yeah. I'm a CFA, MBA yeah. from Chicago. I've been doing this 25 years. I don't think they have a lot of free cash flow. 
if you really Agreed. look Agreed. at how they do this. I said cash flow from operations. I said not without going negative free cash flow, they do it for cash flow from operations. Yeah, but it's really a timing difference between receivables and payables. And it's, it's, so they're playing games. They're playing. It's not games. It's or accounting truth. tricks. Yeah. But they're, yeah, they pay they're, in 90 and they collect in, 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 in one. Yeah. Or, or they zero. collect instantly. It's a, it's a good business model. Right, but so was Dell. Dell was doing the same thing, and as soon as you slow down, the cash flow from that disappears. Yeah. So if you flatten out your revenues, that cash flow goes away. So that's the problem: is that if you're relying on this cash flow number and it goes away, what do you, what do you got then? But John, Amazon's been up three years in a row. I mean, they've. Uh... Gain after gain after gain. When do you twenty years in a row? Yeah, but, <laughs> I was just gonna, but, but so when do you when yeah. do you bail? I'm again using it as a hedge on the rest of. We have three and a half dollars long for every dollar short. So right. I'm okay. looking at it as I'd rather sell Amazon short than sell my Walgreens position, as an example. If I want to cut my exposure, I'd rather sell stocks at two hundred times earnings short than sell my 12 times earnings long portfolio. And the mechanics of being long short allows you to sell something short, get that cash back, and reinvest it in, in a long way. Correct. Um, we never enough far. time. Never enough time. John, come back. Jeez. Thank you. Yeah, love I, having I you. I promise when I next time I'm in Chicago, I'll look at <laughs> It promises, promises. John Thompson at Phyllis Capital Management right here on Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move on the motion. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, let's talk about some of the stocks on the move in the Thursday session. S&P 500, let's just uh, kind of go through that just quickly. 378 names in the index higher today to 126 lower, one unchanged. I do want to also, hmm, yeah, it was moving a little bit, but hmm. hmm, I like the story. Apple shares were just up about six-tenths of a percent today, up about a buck, $175.28 a share. Apple now up 3.6% today, but this story caught my attention companies that stockpile trillions of dollars offshore free of U.S. income tax may get one last break before paying up, provided their fiscal years do not follow the calendar year. It's a timing quirk in the tax overhaul that President Trump signed last month, and it may be good news for companies such as Apple, Microsoft, and Cisco, all of which began their fiscal years before January 1st. Firms including Alphabet, Amgen, GE, with fiscal years that began on January 1st, appear to be shut out of the benefit. Apple Loan, which disclosed an offshore cash hoard of $252 billion as of the end of September. Corey, they may be able to lop more than $4 billion off of a future tax bill. This is according to a tax and business law professor at Harvard. Uh, who wrote about what he called the potential loophole last month. He characterized the boon as a side effect of the speed with which congressional Republicans passed their tax bill. The handwritten tax bill. That's right. I remember that was, wasn't written all handwritten. Napkins? Was it written on napkins? It wasn't on napkins. Well, I'm sure at some point. <laughs> but, but some of the things that the Senate voted on were written in hand on the margins, and it did show a sign of a rush, Just think it's although they tried to fix some of that committee in their defense. Uh, I want to bring it to our attention once again Walmart. Not a big move in the stock, just yeah. a 35 basis point move, if you will, 0.35% increase in shares of Walmart. Just close at $100.02 
per share. Fantastic run in the stock over the last year. So the stock was trading at $65 a share in, in February. Again, that's up about almost 50% from there, almost exactly 50% from there since last February. Walmart announcing, and, and it, so in, in the entire Bloomberg terminal, of the course it is, one of the things I look at, Carolyn, if you know this, uh, is the companies where people on the Bloomberg terminal are see- seeking out more news or the percentage of news has increased a lot over the previous Which day. Which function is that? Uh, I don't know. It's news trends. T R E N. Okay. On the, on the terminal, um, a trend, short trend. for trend. One would imagine. Big surge in stories in Walmart because people are trying to figure out what the heck does this mean? Right. Walmart, uh, geez, it seems it sounds like a big deal, raising minimum, raising the wages, but they're raising entry level wages, which presumably will start people a higher wage. That's good for people. It's good for the economy because they're going to spend every dime of it because no one who works entry in Walmart level. has entry a lot of level. money left over at the end of the day. They spend every dime they can just to get by. It also probably means less people getting welfare for on some level because so many Walmart workers are receiving public assistance because they make so little. Those are full-time employees. What didn't make the headlines as much was the fact that a bunch of Sam's Club stores owned by Walmart are closing at the same time. A lot of workers apparently from what we're reading online showing up at work this morning and finding out that their store is gone. It's a bummer. And their jobs are gone Big with time. them. So uh, the effect on the, uh, the, glo- on the national net, labor net. force, we don't know. Right. But Walmart got a lot of positive headlines. The news, however, is more mixed, I would say, both for the company and certainly for its workers. And, you know, again, Walmart workers, they're, they're, not, they're not putting nope. the money in the savings bank. They're not putting the money on Wall Street. They're putting the money into the economy every dime of it, uh, every minute they get it. All right. Um, certainly get a lot of attention, a lot of searches, uh, and people wanting to know more news about Delta Airlines as well today. Uh, this stock was the number two gainer in the S&P 500, up almost 4.8%, up $2.66 a share, closing at $58.52 a share. Uh, Dave Wilson talked about this a little bit earlier, but uh, the airlines have the- all been in the news this week. Uh, Delta specifically today expecting to maintain its firm grip on pricing power early this year, a strong demand uh, enables the number two U.S. carrier to counteract higher fuel costs. Higher fares will push up revenue for each seat flown a mile. That's a key metric, of course, by as much as 4.5% in the first quarter, according to Delta. They put this out in a statement as it reported earnings. That would be, by the way, its biggest gain in almost four years as the benchmark gauge, a proxy for an airline's control over ticket prices. But we've seen airlines all on the move uh, this week pretty much all higher. UAL, too, up right. 4.6% today. The SIBO VIX volatility index closing today uh, up uh, 0.5%. That's half of a percent for those of you keeping score at home, closing at 987. Interesting story on the on the terminal. I don't want to get too deep into it, but the VIX elephant, this giant trader of VIX options, has changed his trades or her trades uh, to sort of a rollover on a shorter one-month basis, but fundamentally sort of guessing that this VIX strike price by... by um, uh, taking buying puts, I'm sorry, by buying back puts at a strike price of 12 and selling them at 15 and buying back 25 calls. Essentially, this this uh, VIX uh, strategist is guessing that the volatility is at some point in the next month going to have a, a big spike to get to between somewhere between 12 and 15, but stay under 25 so he doesn't get hit with these 25 calls uh, that uh, were purchased. So he gets stuck at an v- extraordinary spike in the VIX, but expects a big one uh, somewhere in between between now. And then Put it so on Dave Twitter. Wilson right now, he's got to look at uh, his stock of the day. Dave Wilson, what do you got? And that would be Brinks. They're making a second appearance as stock of the day. The first was last July 
when the armored company's, uh, car company shares surged in the wake of second quarter results. Now, Brinks, whose ticker is BCO, uh, had quite a rally over the space of 16 months. The earnings were part of that. The shares more than tripled through last October when they peaked at a record. Uh, third quarter results helped with a pullback. Data compiled by Bloomberg showed analysts raised ratings on Brinks during the rally and then stuck with their calls. The prevailing outlook became more positive today as the stock received a buy rating from the fourth of five analysts following the company. The analyst is Sadatian Company's Greg Pendy, who was neutral on Brinks when he began coverage in December. He changed his recommendation to buy and raised his 12-month share price estimate by $4 to $98. Uh, Penny's upgrade spurred a revival in Brink's shares, which had their biggest gain since that post-earnings rally back in July. They climbed 11% to close at $86.90. Great stuff, Dave Wilson. Dave Wilson, our stocks editor with his stock of the day, Brink's. Take that one to the bank. That's a good one. So what is it? It's up 10.5% this year, Dave. More of the same. This is a stock that had done really well, and yeah. now it's starting to show some new life. Up 91% last year, 43% the year before, and up 18% in 2015, Corey Johnson. Fantastic run. I thank you very much, David Wilson. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.